0: Hello, a World to Win listeners, and welcome to this, our first episode of 2021, and what a year it is turning out to be already. This week, I'm going to be talking to Bhaskar Sankara, founding editor of Jackman Magazine and author of The Socialist Manifesto, The Case for Radical Politics in an Era of Extreme Inequality. So we're going to be discussing what is going on in America right now as an assortment of right-wing extremists and white supremacists storm the Capitol building, with one woman reportedly having been fatally shot, Um, as well as the implications of the event that set all this off, which was the victory of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in in Georgia that has given the Democrats control over the Senate. As always, if you want access to the full episode, remember to support us on Patreon uh, so we can pay our producer. And that's at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. That's patreon.com slash a world to win pod. Just hit pause and head over to the site now to support us so we can carry on bringing you such excellent content. And remember to number one, rate us on iTunes Number two, follow us on social media. That's also at a world to win pod across all platforms. And three, remember to share the episode with your friends and comrades. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy this, the first episode of the year. Here's Bhaskar Sankara. Hello, Bhaskar Sankara. And thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of A World to Win. And what a week it's been, am I right?
1: Yes, it's been every week. You know, there's just more and more insanity. But it is good to be talking with you, uh, Grace. Uh, I, I missed my annual trip to the UK, though. I imagine this labor party conference. You. I imagine this labor party conference would have been more depressing, anyway. <laughs> uh, compared to at least yeah. the last, you know, the last four of them uh, before that. But yeah, I mean, U.S. politics has always been a bit nutty, and it's gotten significantly nuttier since last time we met up.
0: Yeah. So, uh, you and I, for the listeners information, are speaking on Thursday on the 7th of January. Um, and we're, we're talking the day after right wing extremists, um, and white supremacists stormed the U.S. Capitol building. Um, so obviously they've, they've made their way into the chamber. There are images of them, you know, people basically kind of what looks like looting. Uh, a woman's been shot. It's reported that several other people have died of what's been called medical emergencies. There's been some arrests and Trump's released this like completely bizarre video um telling his supporters that the election's been stolen but also calling on them like to go home anyway and and you know allegedly saying trying to kind of um diffuse the situation so i just want to start by asking you the question that has been a bit of a live debate online recently which is is this a coup
1: well i don't want to get into a pedantic debate but i would say if this was a proper coup and obviously uh, well, there's the old joke, which I first heard as a young young boy from my dad, which is, you know, there can't be a coup in the U.S. because it doesn't have a U.S. embassy, uh, which <laughs> I think rings very true in the, in the Americas. You know, I think these people didn't really have much of a program other than keeping their leader in power. There wasn't a leadership. There wasn't any attempt to seize the government. There was... The attempt to seize a building and wreak chaos, and it was definitely dangerous. Um, it led to several deaths. You know, it, it seems like it was it was the protesters who 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 died. We're not sure of all the details. Um, at least at least one protester was was shot. One might have fell while climbing in the building and might have might have died too. Like the details are just coming in about those. So obviously, it's a sign of a certain wing of the Trump coalition, a pretty large chunk turning to violent street action, uh, turning to these sorts of extra parliamentary tactics that are, are dangerous in the way that the far right is dangerous. I don't like the coup language because I think that implies an attempt to seize the machinery of government. Uh, I guess if you if you want to use it, I mean, that's... That's fine. But I think it's 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 necessary for us to, you know, be honest and sober about how strong our opponents are and also how strong the institutions, the Republican institutions of the smaller Republican institutions of U.S. governments um, are. And I, I think there's still a lot of stability there, despite the events of the, the last the last few days.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm inclined to agree with you uh, on most of that. Um, but I think there is one relevant point from the kind of this is a coup crowd that's worth addressing. So obviously, usually a coup would involve some element of mass protest, and then one wing of the state, generally the military, would forcefully seize power, as you said, over over the government. Um, now, clearly, that isn't what's happened here. But I think it's also clear that the police, and you know, sometimes it's actually hard to differentiate the US police from the army, but that's a whole other issue, were complicit. So it does seem that there's been like an element of support or at least capitulation by one part of the US state. So even if this isn't a coup, that's pretty significant, right?
1: There's definitely complicity, it seems, by some of the Capitol Hill police. We're not sure of the rationale. Some might have been ideologically supportive. Some might have just been overwhelmed and thinking they wouldn't be overrun and, and just thinking about a way to maybe... Control the situation, but but it was at the very least a terrible exercise in crowd control. There's longstanding mm. links uh, between the uh, far right and police departments in the United States. That's true the world over. The United States is no exception. So I think that's definitely right. And we should pay attention to these links between police forces and the, the right. I'm not sure I would make the leap of saying. That at an institutional level, the police forces were complicit in a in a coup. Though, which I think is a lot of the language of the existing left. To me, that would mean officers and a statement from police officers saying we are supporting our elected president. We're armed and we're in solidarity with these these protests. Um, you didn't see anything like that. You saw the deploying of the National Guard, which apparently by some reports was initiated by the Secretary of Defense and and the the Vice President in consultation with the Democratic Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and without any conversation with Donald Trump. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true. That was just for the moment reporting yesterday. If it is, it seems to me that would be potentially the biggest and most unprecedented constitutional break yesterday. But yeah, the police definitely enabled the far-right mob, uh, the storm the Capitol um, building. And they definitely are embedded with, with the right generally across the United States, which is something we should always be aware of. But I, I don't think it rises to the level where we would say that the police and sections of the military actively supported a, a coup or an insurrection or anything like that.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you on that. Um, and, you know, to the extent that the words we use are important, I think that's probably right. But I've also, I mean, in, in terms of the, the kind of question of the level of institutional support or, or just kind of capitulation, something came out from the intercept yesterday saying that, um, there are FBI documents that shed light on white supremacist infiltration of law enforcement. Now that to me seems like one of the biggest issues here. It's that even if there isn't a kind of institutional level support of the police for what's going on here, clearly, you know, and I think everyone knows that if this had been a different kind of protest, if this had been protest against white supremacy, or even against kind of anti-capitalist protests or environmental protests there probably would have been more deaths and more arrests perhaps because there are elements of uh of the police that are actively sympathetic with the cause that is being um as being promoted by these people
1: and also the messaging comes from the top down If, if the president of the united states seems to be in favor of a protest or demonstration they're going to be treated differently than if the uh, press in the united states is is against it um so yeah. I don't think we we um protest on the left or a protest for racial justice would have gotten gotten up to the capitol <laughs> we we would have mm. been kettled far before uh, that again you know i I think that we obviously don't want to chair on state violence um either, and it seems mm. to me that uh there was state and incompetence um I'm no fan of any of these protesters or what they're protesting for. And and obviously, many of them were just engaged in a an all violent right wing riot. But we should also look into how these people died, whether, you know, any shootings that, that might have came from the police. I think in one case, it was a shooting that some of the one journalist was reporting was um, uh, that the person was shot by by police it's it's not actually that clear to me whether it was maybe an accidental discharge from another rioter or something like that but you know i i think that we should be wary of cheering on state violence i don't think that's really a thing on the the left but i have some mm-hmm. some liberal friends and people yeah. who were posting things like a photo of the woman who was shot with traitor written on it and this is just like i think a sign of just the insane polarization of U.S. politics between liberalism and and this this far right around Trump, and what we need to do is provide a real political alternative, and that means obviously protecting against the far right, but also offering a substantive alternative. You know, all these people, yeah. both on the liberal uh, side of the spectrum and conservatives, are engaging in this sometimes disruptive, in this right-wing case, violent theater. And what we on the left need to constantly offer is a program, something that speaks to people's bread and butter, basic economic needs, uh, speaks to their their experience with depression, speaks to all these things, and, and is connected with a CLEAR program. And just seems to me that American politics is is going off the rails and only thinking they can get a back on track of some old-fashioned class struggle and the left. But yeah. that's been my line about everything in every context for the past uh, decade plus. So I'm not saying anything new.
0: Yeah, I mean, that seems like the, the really uh, important point to emerge out of this is actually that You know, it's so easy to treat what's going on right now as this kind of incredibly exceptional situation that suddenly emerged because like, you know, 2020 was a really bad year or like this one's going to be just as bad or there's some sort of like extreme thing in the water right now that's making everyone go a bit mad. But actually, you know, we know that this kind of weakening of democratic institutions is symptomatic of a far deeper problem that has been created by a capitalist system which actively creates and deepens all sorts of divisions, class divisions, racial divisions, you know, geographical divisions, whatever. And that we're kind of entering a point where it's becoming harder and harder for those democratic institutions to be able to withstand the just turmoil that is being created as a result of these kind of persistent crises that are generated by capitalism. And liberals just seem completely unable to wrap their heads around that. I mean, here in the UK, there have been some right-wing commentators who are basically saying this is basically you know, exactly what we could have ex- expected from someone like Jeremy Corbyn or John McDonnell. Like it's becoming slightly unhinged. And you do wonder where liberalism goes from here.
1: Yes, and also I think it's worth thinking about what happens if politics just becomes polarised in this way dictated by the liberal pundits where there's a fascist threat, then the most important thing, the only important thing, is preserving existing institutions. And Um, and there's talking in a way that feeds into Biden's point that we just need to go back to the way things were in 2015 and 2016. We need to go back to that that old normal when, in fact, the job of the left is to say what was going on before was unacceptable. And what we want to do is take the private miseries, the day-to-day hardships that people feel and take all these injustices and turn them into a political movement give it political expression mm-hmm. and make the old way make the status quo ungovernable and in a way we're we're pushing for a different sort of polarization but what we are not pushing for a return to to the the norms that I think a lot of the people that would have us just be in coalition together against a fascist threat would like want to go back to that. And mm-hmm. and I think you're seeing that a lot with with pundits now talking about the need for us to band together and avoid sectarian squabbling and, and things like that. And again, those are those are things that might make sense in, in some contexts. It might be that if we were under Nazi occupation, we would support Joe Biden as our De Gaulle figure or something like that, as the leader of our our resistance. Um, But now we're in a situation where the neoliberal center of Joe Biden is only going to continue to fuel this, this far right, is only going to continue yeah. to feel this this right populism. And we on the left need to think about how to undermine their social base. And their social base isn't necessarily the hardcore of people storming the Capitol building or engaging in right-wing violence or whatever else, but their social base includes many millions of working-class people, including working-class Black and Latino people, many of whom voted for Donald Trump in November, many of mm-hmm. whom didn't turn out for Joe Biden because they weren't excited by his program. You know, this is the, the future base that we're, we're fighting for. I don't think we need to overstate how progressive or winnable the hardcore Trumpers are, because I don't think they are necessarily, to, mm. to say that we are engaging in a very different sort of politics than the liberal center.
0: And in many ways, you know, when you think about it in, in those terms, it's the liberal center that becomes incredibly dangerous. Because, I mean, you know, it, it, looking at the kind of, um, the discourse that was being pumped out by the right during the last election, it was very much attempting to do what has been successful historically in these contexts, which is kind of stoke populist anger, but rather than kind of stoking it against a a capitalist elite, conflating that capitalist elite with a kind of cultural elite, I suppose, the people in the big cities, uh, the people who have a university education, the people who kind of look down on the rest of the country. And, like as you say the kind of absence of any real class politics which is something that unites you know the desire to remove really any mention of class other than in a kind of very empty sense from the political debate is something that unites liberals and um, and the right and it's something that the left really is is consistently fighting for often not particularly successfully it kind of feels like without the reinsertion of this these discussions of class into um american politics this is just, you know, America, it's going to continue to degenerate either into some sort of, you know, like similar to what we have in the UK, this kind of culture war bullshit, or just kind of all-out race war, which is something that it feels like the US has been on the verge of for, for quite some time now. Well, yeah,
1: I mean, I, w- I would say one thing. I would say culture war is definitely something that's that's very rampant here and extremely, extremely, extremely polarised. I would say that a l- race is not... A major consideration for a lot of working class people, there were certainly movements for racial justice that had majoritarian support, and obviously there was a backlash to them on some parts of the right you know who, who were already on the right before Black Lives Matter and will remain on the right in the in the future. but on the whole, if you look at the main priorities of black workers, white workers, latino workers, what they tell us in polling are their main concerns, it's exactly the same five things, um, uh, top five things, it's just in slightly different orders. And this should give us a lot of solace as we're trying to build some sort of left opposition. And I should say, I'm glad to be in opposition to Joe Biden compared to being in opposition to Donald Trump. I think Hmm. it gives us more of an opportunity to start demanding real change and to start demanding that we actually start expanding the welfare state instead of constantly just being on the rear guard, defending what we've already won, and also on the lookout for further erosions of democratic rights, and just generally the exhaustion of the Trump years of just insult after insult, terrible court appointments, all these things that set, I think, the broader cause of progress back in the United States. So I'm not saying that the worse it gets, the better, or I don't care that the U.S. president has no respect for the outcome of elections or that somehow this chaos will benefit the, the left. That's not my position. My position is simply as we oppose what the far right is doing, we need to be careful to continue to foreground our message of economic justice and change. And also we need to be careful to distinguish ourselves from the main currents of American liberalism. That doesn't mean being antagonistic and saying, you care about this, so therefore I don't care about it. I care about something something else. Uh, but it, it does mean being associated with key demands like Medicare for all or fight for a national um, health insurance system, um, the Green New Deal jobs, a different arrangement on trade, a different orientation towards foreign policy that shows the substantive difference between left-wing socialist politicians and activists and more centrist and liberal ones. Because right now, it often seems that liberals and radicals, self-described radicals, are one and the same, except the radicals are demanding things more stridently if that makes sense. And I think that might be the popular perception of the difference between a left-wing squad member and uh, a ordinary mainstream Democrat. It might be reduced in the popular imagination to just tactics and tone and quote-unquote respect for decorum rather than uh, about issues of substance.
0: Yeah, I mean I uh I think you're probably right on that front. Um and I think you raised an important point there, which which comes back to the same thing. I mean, the difference between liberals and the left, as we've been discussing, has to be whether or not they center a class antagonism of one form or another in not just the policies that they're talking about, but in the discourse and in the language that they're using. You know, you said there, like, like black workers and white, white workers want the same thing. And we know that. Um And that's, you know, hardly surprising because a lot of the kind of interests that they're going to have are going to be defined by their class position. But the question is, and always has been, whether or not, that class coalition can be changed from something that's kind of latent into something that's an active part of people's identity. I mean it feels like Biden I mean of course he isn't he's not even going to try to do that. How can the left in that context have the kind of impact that that you're talking about? I mean um you know, do, do we need to be talking more about getting active in the labor movement, about direct action, uh, about, you know, media and communication strategy? Where do you think the left should be focusing its energies right now?
1: Yeah, obviously, I, I think our focus should be in the labor movement, but that's not something we could really will into being um, ourselves. I think the reason for the decline of labor movement in the US, a lot of it's structural and it's not very clear what's the way out of our mind. The labor movement is large enough that it hasn't completely vanished. It just kind of plateaued and stagnated. And I think a lot of those changes need to come within the labor movement. I think a strong labor movement needs a strong left and vice versa. But it really is striking to me how the big story of the November election class, the continued class de the dealignment of the working class f- from the Democratic Party just only continued. You know, Biden won with this extremely affluent, highly educated base. November 2020 was a year of really historic turnout, but the turnout wasn't even at all across class and race. Uh, so working class Black neighborhoods saw less of an increase in turnout than any other the Democratic Party claimed the mantle of Black Lives Matter and racial justice to try to win over those voters, but they they weren't as interested in the message being offered by Biden than wealthier and more educated uh, people. So, I think our main task is trying to prevent this further consolidation of center left politics in the U.S. in just the high income, highly educated suburban. A coalition at the expense of the traditional base of this politics, like even the Democratic Party for us, as walls as from the New Deal onward had a base in a multiracial working class, and for us, I think that means that we have to look carefully about the candidates that we're we're running. Uh, we need to run working class candidates. I, I think we need to run candidates who are bound together by a platform that focuses on economic egalitarianism. And we need to you know, make sure that US politics doesn't become solely motivated around cultural conflicts and regional identities. And in a way, I think that the route to this is through uh, electoral politics, just because this is the only immediate avenue for your average DSA member, your average Jacobin reader, to actually plug in to politics, uh, to actually engage with their, their neighbors in a struggle, in a campaign to actually talk about Medicare for All and a Green New Deal, you need a reason to knock on someone's door. And for most Americans, in such a depoliticized, depressing context, our engagement with politics is just those, every two years, every four years, an election. And I used to have the view, and I still kind of believe in the abstract, that elections were just something of a litmus test. They measure how much organizing we've done. They measure class consciousness. They measure a lot of things, but the real work happens with the base building outside of election. And uh, anyone who knows my work knows I spend way too much time thinking about the late 19th century and early 20th century social democratic movement. So that's still kind of my worldview and, and what I um, what I think. But in our current context today, I think a lot of the route uh, towards us bringing back working class politics and bringing back. A class oriented politics and civil society will happen through elections. Uh, So, we just need to continue to run candidates that are distinct. And we need to really avoid the most narrow kind of cultural conflict in the US, particularly those around the media cycle driven regional identities and people saying, oh, forget about the South or this area is um all these red states people are voting against their economic interests and the blue states are subsidizing them. So fuck them. I mean, this is just the narrative you'll hear increasingly from ordinary, respectable liberals. And I think it's overheated, it's insane, and it it really leaves behind billions of working class people, some of the most oppressed people in in the United States, who aren't engaged with politics and need to be engaged. And that's the biggest block out there, non-voters and and semi-regular voters. And those are the people we need to activate. And we won't activate them through lazy feels like that.
0: I want to go into this point a little bit more, and we won't stay on it too long, but um, this point about the relative importance of elections. I mean, Obviously, it's different in the U.S. You have many, many more elections at many, many different levels, and they can be tied into kind of community issues in a way that um, it's less easy to do in the U.K. But the big issue there is surely that, you know, Biden's got four years. He'll probably get it. Well, He maybe he'll get a second term. If he doesn't, that will be somewhat surprising. But it doesn't look like he's going to be challenged really from the left uh, in terms of his position during that period. You're right to say that the way that most people engage with politics is through elections. And again, you know, maybe there's more of a chance to do that more frequently and at a more kind of grassroots level in the US than there is in other parts of the world. But surely a big part of what the left should be doing is trying to encourage people to see many, many more areas of their lives as political and particularly, obviously, their employment relationships, their relationship with their landlord, you know, with their bank, whatever. And, you know, obviously we talk in kind of vague terms about what it means to do kind of community organizing and organizing within the labor movement and stuff all the time. But, it, you know, to me, it feels like that should be a big priority for people who are looking to, you know, expand people's conception of of what's possible, because that often feels like the biggest constraint. You know, if you ask a working class person or you ask a kind of... Um, you know, someone who is in one of those states that you were talking about, like what is getting in the way of your, you know, visions for what you know you want, you know that these are your interests. Why why don't you think they're achievable? And they just say, well, you know, change is basically impossible. Like the elites don't listen to me. No one ever really listens to me. There's no point voting, et cetera, et cetera. So getting them from that space to actually thinking not only elections are important, but also politics is Happening in all these different places, power is being exercised over me in all these different ways. That seems like a pretty big, like sin qua non, basically, for socialist organizing in the U.S.
1: Yeah, there's a um a William Morris uh, line uh, that goes something like, "Workers think they are a class; they ought to think they are a society, or, or something, something like that." I'm bastardizing it, but now we're at the point where many people don't think they're part of a class right no. we're, we're we're at the point where our, our main mission is kind of a class reformation and there's going to be many different routes to do this but in the in the UK obviously you have a more recent tradition of mm. large scale trade union struggle and for all its faults you know the labor party you know through clps you you, you have mass membership organizations um, you yeah. have unions that are very politicized and, and are are big players in in, in UK uh, politics and are more willing. I know we could be very frustrated with with unions and the level of militancy in, in any any country, any context, but are, are, are relatively more willing to take industrial action, at least given their constraints. You know, in a, in a way, if you consider the fact that. There might be more constraints in the UK, uh, less at the legal level, but more just at the structural economic level. Um, it's the the working classes has been through periods, you know, quite, quite, um, quite militant. So obviously one one major area where I think in the US we can make advance is with the transformation of the existing labor movement. And we had these big wave of teacher strikes in 2018. They seem like so long ago because that was a completely oh. different period in this in this struggle, but they just happened. It was just two years ago. Um, we had um, all these states, red states, a wave of public sector strikes. And these strikes had popular support. And in places like West Virginia and Arizona and Oklahoma even, they were led in part by socialists, you know, there was a lot of socialists as rank and file educators. Why are we so strong among teachers and relatively among nurses and and whatnot? You know, in part, that's because the left is not very much rooted in a class base anymore. And to the extent we still have bastions of strength is just in highly educated white collar professions. But if that's what we have to start with, let's start there. And those are expanding sectors, education Mm -hmm. and, and health. Um, Jane McLeavy talks a lot about the need to uh, emphasize logistics as well. So think about yeah. like strategically. Why I like her work is that she's thinking about what are the choke points in U.S. economy. Uh, we used to have a particular strength, even in the U.S. and the West Coast, our ILWU, our longshore workers, were communists and radicals and socialists. And you know, a few hundred people can shut down uh, a large swath of the, the economy if they're well positioned. And I think this idea of strategic weight, um, this idea of of having a labor strategy and focusing on certain sectors uh, makes a lot of sense. There's, there's really smart thinking coming out of the democratic socialist America around this. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a great compliment to um, electoral um, politics. Obviously, in the US, we have a a party question. We have debates around the Democratic Party and what strategy to pursue within it. I think the controversy has been somewhat resolved just on the point of, should we run in Democratic Party primaries? I think the experience of Bernie Sanders, Mm -hmm. the experience of all these DSA elected officials means, yes, absolutely, we should run. Uh, The question is, well, should we run and then try to transform the Democratic Party, or run and just use the bully pulpit? On that question, I'm more on the the latter side. Whereas, you know, in the UK, I think there's no reason not to continue to to organize and fight in the Labour Party, even as things get bleaker and bleaker, and we rue the missed opportunities of the last five years. But you know, this all this essentially means is that we need to be working at different levels. We need to be working internally to train a new generation of Marxists um, and do that that, uh, cadre building. But we also need to be doing mass work through these electoral campaigns and through crafting appeals that don't alienate ordinary people. And I don't think there's a contradiction at all in this, but there's a lot to be done You know, Ralph Miliband used this term Marxist reformism. And ultimately, um, what that means today is fighting uh, for class struggle, fighting for day-to-day reforms, fighting uh, even through candidates and and movements like Sanders or, or Corbyn that are operatively social democratic but doing it in a way that opens up the horizons for more radical transformations down the road and doing it in such a way that we're pursuing a politics that leads to an extension of democratic participation in civic uh, life and continues to push to transform the character of uh, the state, the character of politics, and puts us on a firmer footing that we can have the kind of mass based class politics that we 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 want to see in places like the u s and u k but that's a process, and we can't just pretend that our base is already here, and one potential fear that I see in some quarters of even my own milieu around Jacobin and around dsa is there are some people who might think that we're already there as far as having a base for our politics because we are popular on individual issues like Medicare for All or the Green New Deal. Um but this this these policy preferences can't express themselves until we have a class base and class vehicles. So in other words, when we look at something like Podemos or the Corbyn experience or the Sanders experience, these were shortcuts not to actually just enact a bunch of progressive policies. These were shortcuts towards class reformation. And that class reformation is going to create the base from which we can actually build our politics. And it's not an either or, like I'm looking for for any shortcuts um, you know, possible along those those routes, but I have a feeling that, that the next cycle of politics for the US left is going to be a slower um, grind and uh, a lot of people are going to be demoralized.
0: So I wanna talk now about the item of news that probably should have been number one on the agenda today, the fact that the Democrats have taken the Senate after the results coming out of Georgia. Can you tell us a little bit about the two candidates, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff? Kind of, what are their politics, um, and just how is this going to change um, the strategies that are pursued by the Democrats um, in in the coming years?
1: So, uh, Warnock is is quite a bit more progressive. He has roots in uh, the Black Church. He has an agenda that that is, um, you know, generally. Uh, progressive center-left um, agenda, certainly not a Berniecrat, but he's a uh, a progressive uh, Democrat. Ossoff is very explicitly a, a centrist Democrat, the second coming of a Joe Biden or, or a Bill Clinton. He right. refused to even say he was for Green New Deal, Medicare for All. He tried to distance himself from the demands of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. Yet at the same time, he's quite polished. You know, he is almost mm. too polished. I think that was unnerving for a lot of people. You know, you kind of the visual concept of the uncanny valley, which is like as um, yeah 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 <laughs> yeah. So as as we get closer and closer in CGI and other stuff to to photorealism, <laughs> um, we we hit a point where it's so close to being human and and photorealistic that it like revolts us. <laughs> and I kind of feel like um, initially in his early political runs, Ossoff was kind of like that. People were like, something isn't right here. Something's actually quite revolting. Um, I mean, it worked out for for Starmer. That's kind of how I feel about uh, yeah. about him or how I felt about him, I guess, when he was running. Now he's just fumbling and incompetent. I kind of, uh, I'm slightly more endeared to him than I was during the run just because he seems like he's in way over his, his head. But that's it. <laughs> That's a digression, but you know, fundamentally, the most important thing is they're caucusing with uh, the uh, Democrats, and they now give control of the Senate to the Democratic Party. So it's 50-50, But the uh, Vice President of the United States is the President of the Senate, and the President of the Senate has a tie-breaking vote. Yeah. So um, this means on ju- judicial appointments. So everyone's only focused about the Supreme Court. I don't think we're going to get court packing or any change there. Um, But the most important thing is there's federal uh, court appointments that that can now be pushed through. And also um, this helps with budget reconciliations uh, where the change is kind of really, really made. But it's still 10 senators less than what Barack Obama had when he took power in two thousand. Eight, so 10 senators. The, it's really staggering what happened in the Obama years. Obama oversaw more uh, seat losses than any other president um, in history of his party. The Democratic Party by 2016 was at its lowest point since the 1920s nationwide in terms of number of elected seats. And so not all that strategy, part of it has to do with that structural problem, the geographic yeah. concentration of the party in urban and suburban areas, given how undemocratic the U.S. system um, is. So in a way, this suburban strategy of Biden might be good enough to win a presidential election or win the Electoral College. But, you know, I think there's there's both practical um, as well as for us ideological reasons to for the party to try to restore more of his working class um, uh, base. But but that's the real significance. It could have been just about anyone, um, and I do think the left deserves a lot of the credit for the for the victory, despite the fact
0: that yeah. the candidates,
1: especially Ossov, are not of the left. You know, there was a lot of grassroots organizing, and you know, DSA chapters were activated. But more importantly, you know, efforts from uh, trade unions and others to turn out the vote. It was a referendum on Trump, and Trump is just very unpopular he never had a majoritarian um base he lost to even hillary clinton who ran a comically well not really comic tragically maybe both um (laughs) campaign in 2016 he you know got three million more votes than him so that's one silver lining of the last four years that the right in the u.s hasn't had the majoritarian base these right populists that Mm. we've seen in turkey and India and Brazil and so on. And this is the real danger of the next few years. What happens if we get Trump, but he's competent, you know, Um, or a Trump figure that actually delivers the goods on like one big infrastructure project or jobs program or whatever else. Because in defeat, uh, Trump space actually became, did become, And again, I don't want to overstate the shift, but did become less white and more working class.
0: Mm. So now that Georgia's won, when can we expect those much talked about $2,000 stimulus checks from the Biden administration?
1: I think uh, actually there will be um, movement on a big relief bill, and I think they will include the uh, checks, and, and I think this priority can be pushed through the budget reconciliation process. But I actually am not, I'm not positive. I have we have one specialist at Jacobin who keeps us informed about like Senate procedural things right. that that the left that I grew up with, you know, the WTO to occupy left. Just yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No idea what's 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 going on, but but yeah, I, I do think that, that the, the two thousand dollar checks are widely popular enough that it will be through. But the more important part of the legislation um, at the national level, you know, I could really use the two thousand bucks. <laughs> but at the, at the national level, the more important thing is um, the funding for states and um, and local city governments because mm-hmm. uh, of our federal system. One reason why U.S. democracy doesn't work, because at our federal system, you know, we have all these states, cities that can't properly deficit finance, yet a lot of the burden of entitlements and infrastructure and other stuff falls upon these areas. So they need help from the, from the federal uh, government. They've been hit very hard. Um, we're seeing kind of drops in tax bases in some areas and and, and so on. So, um there's a lot in the bill that should should booster the u s economy that seems to have quite a bit of of support and um, yeah, Biden has the mandate to do that. He I think would be unable to do a lot of other things in part because out of those fifty Democrats, two are uh, not even in my hyperbolic way, uh, I think you consider. Conservative or center right, uh, one mm-hmm. senator in Arizona, another one in West Virginia. And it, it just means that, yeah, the, there is no margin for error. And the party will be in a tough situation, not being able to blame everything on the Republicans, which has worked quite well for them for the past four years, especially because the Republicans were doing many blameworthy things. And the Democratic Party kind of revived itself in, in opposition. So we'll we'll see what happens when they're in power. Traditionally, the incumbent president's party loses in midterm elections. Um, So the next two years are really crucial uh, because the Mm -hmm. Democrats actually lost seats in the House of Representatives in the last election. And again, part of this is just because of, I keep harping on this point, but U.S. democracy is so undemocratic that it requires a super... Majority of voters just to eke out a narrow majority in um, in these bodies for for Democrats.
0: And on that note of uh, kind of <laughs> reserved optimism, I think we'll will end the show. Um, so thanks so much, Bhaskar, for joining me on this week's episode of A World to Win, and uh, we hope that you enjoy the show.